Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey there, this is episode three of season two. Um, Today I'm going to be talking to Jennifer Dibel. She is a debut author. Her first book released last week, February 2nd. The book is titled A Dance in Donegal. And in it, Jennifer incorporates a lot of her experience from the time she spent living in Ireland. She lived in Ireland in Donegal for two years. And we talk about that during the interview, as well as some of the like folklore and superstitions that were part of the Irish culture at the time that she's writing about. Her book is set in 20, no, I'm sorry, in 1921, so like 100 years ago. I really enjoyed talking to Jennifer. I thought her um, her subject matter is so interesting, and I hope that you do too. I did want to mention in this intro, because um, it comes up in our interview, Jennifer mentions NaNoWriMo. And if you're not a writer or an aspiring writer, you might not know what NaNoWriMo is. And it's um, it's NaNo, N-A-N-O, RIMO is W-R-I-M-O. It's National Novel Writing Month. So a lot of my listeners probably have heard of that, but some of you might not. So I just wanted to clarify. Um, Jennifer kind of makes a joke about it, and I wanted to make sure that nobody's left in the dark wondering what on earth we're talking about. But November every year is National Novel Writing Month, and like hundreds of thousands of people sign up to write one novel in a month. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Jennifer. Jennifer Dibel, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, your debut novel, A Dance in Donegal, released February 2nd. Now we're recording this prior to that date, but this show may, it probably will release after the book is already out. So can you tell us about this novel? Absolutely. So this book is the book of my heart, which I'm pretty sure every author says about their book. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but it follows the story of Maura Doherty, who is an Irish American. She was born in Boston. Her mother was first generation Irish and moved over um, when she was a young adult. And Maura's mother at the beginning of the book first tells Maura that she put her name in to replace uh, the original teacher in her mom's home village of Ballyman in County Donegal. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is back in 1920 and Maura is hesitant to go, but then her mother passes away suddenly and unexpectedly. And Maura starts having these dreams where her mother is pleading with her to come to Ireland and save her. And she's mm. trying to figure out, why, how can I save you if you're already gone? Um, right. but ultimately, she decides to go. And she gets there and discovers there's all these secrets and rumors swirling. And she has no idea what they are about until finally, piece by piece, it comes out that they're surrounding her mother and her family. So then mm. rather than just teaching in the school, Maura is having to figure out um, what these rumors even are because no one will tell her and how to clear her family's name. And so people are threatening her with her livelihood and even her life at some points. And so then she has to work 
Um, of course, there's some some great local Irish characters that help her along the way, including a very handsome, ready Thatcher um, mm. who helps her out. And mm. so then it's her journey of not only discovering um, more about her mother than she ever would have dreamed, but also more about herself and her faith and whether or not she's really going to live out what she says she believes. Oh, cool. It's so intriguing. I've read the first couple chapters um, and I'm really curious about the mystery part, you know, (laughs) Um, but what inspired you to write this book? So this book started as sort of a little bit of catharsis after our own experiences of living in Donegal. My husband and I lived there for two years when we were first married. We were there as students studying the language and the culture. They Mm -hmm. speak um, Irish Gaelic. There is the first language of the people in that area. And so we were just there to study that. And it was two of the most amazing years of our lives, but also probably the two most difficult years. Um, Maybe 2020 (laughs) might have edged that out just a little bit, but um, so I just needed a way to kind of process everything that we had been through once we came back um, Mm -hmm. because when it was time for us to leave, I couldn't wait to leave. But then once we got back to America, I was really torn. And so I had seen, I had always kind of written as a kid and in college, I did a lot of writing and I had seen um, sort of a call for submissions from a publisher that I believe no longer even publishes fiction, but they were looking for inspirational stories that have um, surround sort of cultural celebrations. And so that kind of sparked the idea for this story and something around St. Patrick's Day. Um So I first started writing that way back in 2004 as Mm. just that way to process the things we'd experienced, the people we'd met, the culture shock, um, our experience, learning the language, you know, things like that. Um, So yeah, that's where it all began. Wow. So give me an idea of the timelines. So you were... In, and I pronounced it wrong. And no, when you're I fine. The name of the book. The name of the book. Dun- Donegal. Is that right? Or- um, they say Donegal, but it's it's Donegal. one of those. Okay. It kind of depends on your accent. <laughs> okay, and clearly I don't have an Irish accent. Um, so you were there for two years. Mm-hmm. I think I read maybe in your bio that you lived in Ireland and Austria for ten years, or. Yes, we were in Europe for a total of almost, we were just shy of 10 years. So we lived in Donegal for two, then we came back to the States. My husband went and got his master's degree. Then we went back to Ireland and we lived in Galway for four years. Okay. And then we lived in Austria um, for whatever the rest. I I teach English. I'm not a math person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it ended up being about two years in Austria. And it was about 10 years total with the with the company that we were with. Okay, I see. Um, so how did your years in Ireland, I mean, you you talked about how the years in Donegal kind of inspired it, mm-hmm. but how did all of that together impact the story? Um, you know, the, your years in the other place as well. I mean, I think that the story wouldn't even exist without that time there. Right. Um, just because, you know, there's, there's a plethora of Irish things out there that aren't authentically Irish. 
And I'm not Irish born, you know, I have Irish heritage, like, I think most people in America probably do. Right, Um, I do. But I feel like a lot of people think that Ireland is just, you know, the Blarney Stone and top of the Marnin and things like that. And I wanted, Mm -hmm. because I saw after being there and living in it, I saw just what deep richness there is to the culture and Mm. what a beautiful people they really are and how um, just the layers that they have because of their history and their traditions and things like that. And I wanted to bring an authenticity that most people don't get to experience because most people only get to go, you know, if they, if they get to go at all, they get to go for a week or maybe 10 days if they're really lucky. And so I wanted people to have a chance to see what that's really like. And so living there for six years, living daily in the language, really immersing ourselves in the culture. um, There's no way that I could have written this without that experience, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, So I think it's worth noting that the book takes place almost exactly 100 years before its release. Mm-hmm. So, because um, I, when I started on the third chapter, which opens February 1st, 1921, I thought, wait a second, the release date is February 2nd, 2021. So that's pretty wow. cool. You yeah. know, I hadn't even put that together. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> That's funny. amazing. Yeah, I just thought that was neat. Um, so how did you go about researching this time period, like 100 years ago, um, and what it was like in Ireland then, as well as in Boston, because you also- sure. So there is stuff. There is a small part. You know, the first few chapters are in Boston, and so yeah. I have some friends that had lived there for a while. So I kind of talked with them about it, and then just you know did some digging through internet searches and things to find out the layout of the city and street names and what kind of buildings they would have lived in and things like that. Mm. Um. As for the time period in Ireland, we were really blessed. Part of what we did, well, what we did those four years that we went back to Ireland and we were in Galway was we worked for an American-based travel company. And so Mm. when people came over, we took them around to all these historical sites that aren't usually on the big tours. And so our job was to learn the history and we were going to ancient megalithic tombs and ring forts and things like that and learning the history and not just the history, but like the, the folklore that goes with those. So not just the actual historical, but what, what would have been passed down through stories and things like that. So I was able to glean a lot from there. And then um, being set in a place where we live now, Ballyman, the, the village that it's set in is fictitious, but it's heavily influenced by the village that we lived in, in Donegal, which was called Bunbeg. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's places in the book like the Poison Glen and Glen Bay Castle and Letterkenny that um, are real. And so because I had spent so much time there with that firsthand experience, I, I knew what was there and what had been there at that time and what wasn't there yet and things like that. And of course, the good old interwebs helped greatly with other tiny details. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. So can you tell us about the lessons and themes that are present in A Dance in Donegal? Yes. So when I first started writing it, I didn't really set out with a specific sort of message in mind, but the characters kind of taught me lessons along the way. I think Mm -hmm. the 
one of the biggest ones that Moira, the main character, experiences is she's she's a person of faith. You know, she's a Christian. And when she goes, she feels like she has a pretty strong handle on her faith and what that means and what that should look like for a woman in the 1920s to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. But throughout, she's presented with different opportunities where she feels like she knows what she's supposed to do, but it goes completely against what um, the community would want her to do. And so she's faced with these decisions to obey what she feels is right versus what would kind of keep her social capital um, intact. And so because of some of the choices she makes, she ends up kind of isolating herself from people that she thought were her friends because they feel like she's making an irresponsible choice. And so I really related to that because as a Christian woman working in the secular world, you know, it can be difficult sometimes to do or say the things that deep down I feel I, I need to say or do. Right. But those don't always have the best um, responses. And so she, one of the characters finally says, you know, you need to decide if you're going to obey what you feel God is leading you to do. But if you do that, you also have to be willing to accept the consequences of your obedience. And um, that, that was one of those moments that kind of surprised me as I was writing it. But it was like... I feel that <laughs> I've been in that moment where there's going to be some consequences for this obedience. And some of them are really positive and encouraging and some of them are not so much. Right. I love that. I love it when, when our work surprises us and kind of parts of our life come out that we weren't expecting mm. to be there. That's cool. So your book is historical romance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's classified as, but there are also elements of mystery in it. So how, can you talk about like, how did you go about shaping the story? So this story, when I post about it, I've used the hashtag NaNoWriDecade instead of <laughs> NaNoWriMo uh, because it literally took, I think it was 12 years from the time that I typed the first word to when I typed the end. Um, and yeah. There, it changed so much. I was so naive when I first started. I didn't know what I was doing. And when I first started it, I don't know that I really set out to try and publish it. It was just a story that I needed to get out of my heart. Yeah. Um, so when it first started, it was very vanilla. It was very um, <laughs> calm. And I thought there was conflict, but there really wasn't. And So Mm -hmm. just over the years, as I learned more, as I kind of studied the craft more, as I read different genres of books, I had always kind of stuck to one little wheelhouse that I read in and didn't stray too much from that. Um, Can you tell Um, me what what genre was that? that um, It was always just like straight historical romance, like like Jeanette Oak type, you know, the the old school stuff. And then just also through relationships with other writers who were willing to kind of pour into me and invest in me, I realized that, you know, there, there is a lot of mystery and suspense just in Irish history and culture anyway. You know, there are people, they say they're people of blessings and curses and they, there's, Mm -hmm. there's the historical, this is what happened, but then there's the underlying, well, this is why it really happened because, you know, 
this giant did this thing or these, you know, there were, there's always sort of a supernatural element to everything in their history. So it, it seemed fitting that there would be this element of mystery. And that really gave Mora her motivation and her reason for doing all the stuff that, that she ends up doing. And so it was through um, brainstorming with a writer friend of mine that um, is a brilliant mystery and suspense writer. She's also one of the most kind and generous authors that that I know, Jamie Jo Wright. She oh. just came alongside me and we would brainstorm all these horrible things I could do to my characters. And um, she kind of, she didn't give the idea of what the suspense could be, but she made me believe that I could write a sort of mysterious suspenseful element to it. And it just, when I figured out what that was going to be, it just really added another layer of depth and kind of flavor to the story that um, it's, it's kind of one of my favorite parts. So the whole thing. Oh, awesome. That's cool. So, but you mentioned the like supernatural elements in Irish history and folklore. Mm -hmm. Did, did, are there supernatural elements in this book that you wrote or is it more just like straight mystery? Um, there's not supernatural elements in like the ghosty type way. Um, okay. There's supernatural in the Christian faith way, but then there's also mm-hmm. that sort of superstitious element that the Irish right. hold very dear, especially back in that time period. They were very, you know, never do this. And there's little, someone's trying to kind of intimidate her and get her in her head. So they're play, doing all these little things that people thought were like a curse. So someone sprinkles crushed up eggshells around her door and she doesn't think anything of it. And someone else is like, Oh my gosh, someone's trying to set the fairies on you and things like that, that um, we don't really think about. And I don't know that they truly really believe those things anymore, but they will say things about them. You know, it's, it's definitely woven into their kind of cultural heritage there. And it's fascinating. uh, One of the most fascinating parts of their culture to me. Wow. That's interesting. Can you tell us about your path, the path that your writing has taken? Um, You mentioned that you've always liked to write. um, Mm. And can you tell us about like the writing you did before it, before it turned into this novel? But it sounds like you started this pretty early on. If you started if you've been working on it for a decade now, or did you say you started writing it in, I thought you said 2004 was when you actually. Yes. So I I spent from 2014 or 2004 to 2015 writing it off and on. Yeah. And then started pitching. I started pitching the agents in 2015, sort of late. And then we started pitching to publishers. I think it was like, middle of 2017. And then I signed the contract summer of 2019. Okay. Awesome. But to answer your original question, um, I was always writing as a kid. I got a diary when I was in elementary school. So I would write in that constantly. And then in high school is when I really started exploring kind of creative writing after a project that we did in my English class. And then, but I never like really thought about ever like writing a book or anything like that at that point. Yeah. Um, 
And then in college, one of my English professors, we did a creative writing unit and they, one of their comments on one of my pieces was that I should really think about pursuing writing as a career. And so I Mm. said, well, that's really nice. Thank you. But I'd like to, you know, make money. So, um, (laughs) at that point I was, I was trying to pursue physical therapy, but then I ended up majoring in education. So that's always kind of funny to me. Yeah. But I started really focusing on writing, you know, pursuing public writing. Um, It was shortly after our son was born. So that was in 2010. So probably in 2011, Mm -hmm. um, blogs were just really becoming really popular or I was just becoming aware of them. I'm not sure what the order was there, but um, (laughs) I saw on somebody's blog that they were starting a new parenting blog and they were looking for contributors and that you could send in an audition piece. So I did and they accepted me and that became the better mom. And I've written Mm. for them ever since then. So 10 or 11 years now. And through that, I met Trisha Goyer, who is, who was one of the contributors and she's an amazing writer and such an incredible woman. And she was another one that, that really just was kind to me and let me pick her brain and bend her ear. And she encouraged me to continue. So that was when I I picked this story back up and started, okay, I actually want to finish this. Mm. And, um, that's when I started my own blog back then it was this gal's journey. Um, and so I just started writing and guest posting as much as I could. And that's how I got, there was a couple of magazines in the States that I would write for fairly regularly. And, all through that time working on a dance in Donegal. Cause that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's where my heart really was. Yeah. So it's been this big, long process. And even looking back as far as 2010, I could see how things lined up exactly perfectly to bring me to the point where I am now. Whereas if I had not pursued that opportunity, I might have still ended up getting published, but I definitely would not have had the path that I've had and the, the connections that right. I've been blessed to make just through those things. So it's been neat in those moments of doubt to look back and see, okay, this, this all lined up exactly perfectly. So that can't be an accident. Yeah. That's awesome. You already touched on this, but do you want to say any more about how you went about, like once you finished this novel, how you went about getting an agent and, and getting that first contract? Sure. So when we moved back from Europe and we had decided we were going to go ahead and settle back here in the States, I was working for a wonderful literary PR firm called Litfuse. I was doing, um, I was a PR assistant Mm. and one of the first um, campaigns that I worked on was for um, Cynthia Rookty's book, The Song of Silence. And she, I was just immediately impressed with her work ethic and um, Mm. her just her amazing way of crafting a story and her impeccable writing voice and things like that. And um, I just was really excited to be able to work with somebody like her. And then through that time that I was with Lit Fuse, I was able to kind of get a better glimpse at what how that whole process works with publishing a book and marketing a book and, and made some more connections. It was through that, that I connected with Jamie Joe Wright the first time. And, okay. Um, so just made some really encouraging writer friends 
And um, that led to me being able to meet up with some local writer friends that were multi-published authors. And so they were able to kind of talk me through, okay, first you have to actually finish your manuscript for fiction. You can't (laughs) pitch it till it's done. And I was like, no, I want to pitch now. Um, And um, so they were the encouragement to, to get it finished. And then they helped me learn, you know, to not every agent is the same and to research, you know, who you want. And so I had my list of, of who I wanted. And of course I just knew that the first one that I, my first choice author or agent was going to just snatch me up and be so excited to be able to represent me. And that did not happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a spreadsheet of um, agent rejections, some more encouraging than others, but um, a, a friend of mine asked if she could read some of the book and she kind of helped me think through some plot holes and things like that. And then she was like, okay, I think you're ready. And I said, ready for what? She says, I think, I think you're ready. I want to um, recommend you to my agency and, and see if they have any openings for you. Oh. So she, she mentioned me to her agent at books and such. And they said, Oh, this looks great. I think you could be a good fit. Um, and one of our newer agents has uh, space for you. Um, send your proposal over to Cynthia Richty. <laughs> she had just become an agent and I, yeah. I remember hearing about it. And so I thought, well, maybe I would pitch her. And I went and I looked and it said that she was, you know, representing um, minimal fiction or very limited fiction. So I thought, yeah. oh, okay, she's focusing on nonfiction. So I won't, you know, I don't want to waste her time. And, uh, but then she ended up being my agent. So oh, awesome. it was this, incredible full circle journey that I, I couldn't have orchestrated myself if I wanted to. Yeah, that's neat. So then um, how long was it from when you signed with your agent to um, like when you got the contract? I'm sure you said this before, so I'm sorry. So No, that's okay. I have to remember dates again. <laughs> um, I signed with her at the very end. I believe it was the very end of 2015. Okay. Um, and we started, we spent a long time polishing the story because at that point it had really only been in my hands and my mom, she's my, she's my first reader. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of writer friends who'd read a few chapters. Um, so we spent some time really polishing it up, adding some more depth to the story and things like that. So we didn't start pitching publishing houses until, I want to say it was almost 2017. Mm, okay. Um, and we pitched for a while and it took a long time to hear back from some houses. Yeah. And then in April, I hope I'm remembering this right. I believe it was April of 2019 um, is when I got the official offer from Ravel um, mm. for a two book contract. And then I signed the contract finally in that June of 2019. Wow. That's exciting. It really is. I still can't believe it's happening. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm sure all my friends are sick of hearing me say it's surreal, but that's the only, (laughs) that's the only way I can think to describe it. I'm so grateful. Right. Um, so I understand you also teach middle school. So when, yeah, you have, and you have your own children too, like Mm -hmm. three children, right? Um, so when do you get the words down on paper or the screen or whatever. <laughs> How do you find time for that? Um, that is a good question. If you 
Since COVID, um, well, since school started this year, not a whole lot of words have gone on the page. I'll be mm-hmm. honest with you, trying to, you know, teach virtually and yeah. help my own kids and all that. It's, it's mentally exhausting more than anything else. Right. Um, I do a lot of it summer break. So book two mostly got done in June and July, um, sitting okay. at my dining room table while my kids were running around on summer break. Mm, yes. Um, but yeah, it's in those, you know, fringe pockets of time. I've had to give up the idea that I need two or three hours of silent, uninterrupted time to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm learning how to just sit down if I've got 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, to, you know, plunk out as many words as I can and I can fix them later. Yeah. Um, so, and then my husband's very supportive. There's there's a writer's group that we meet twice a month. So I go out on Tuesday nights for a few hours with my computer and um, a couple of times a month and hang out with them and we talk and we eat dinner and then we write for an hour or so. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. So just kind of in those pockets of, of time because otherwise it just would never get done. Right. Um, so can you tell us about book two? I think I can. <laughs> um, I'm very excited about this book. It's also set in Ireland in 1920, um, which I didn't plan it to be at the same time period because it, they are standalone books. Yeah. Um, but this one is set in Galway okay. and surrounds the family who created the clatter ring, the heart and the hands and the crown. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's about a British landlord who comes over to be, he's one of the last landlords, um, British landlords to, to kind of rule that parish before, cause that's right in the middle of the Irish war for independence. And so, um, he, his time is limited though. He doesn't know that. And mm. his daughter is very precocious and overactive. And so he lines up an apprenticeship for her with this jeweler and, the jeweler's son is very um, anti-British and is not happy to have a woman as an apprentice, one, but two, to have a British woman. Um, So it's kind of their story of figuring out how to work with each other and um, deal with the unrest that's going on. There's a lot more of the Irish British struggle for independence in book two than there is in book one. And it's, Mm. there's a lot of, um, you know, both sides of both families have a lot of preconceived ideas. The, the British family has a lot of ideas of what they think it means to be Irish and the Irish have a lot of ideas what they think it means to be British. And so through the Annabeth and, um, oh my gosh, I just forgot my own character's name. That's really great. (laughs) Stephen, Stephen's his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, between Annabeth and Stephen, they kind of start to open their own eyes and their family's eyes that maybe um, what they had thought about those other people might not be um, quite as accurate as they had once believed. Okay. Wow. Cool. So, do you have ideas for? I know you said you're not, you haven't been doing much writing since school started, which is totally understandable. This. Um, teaching has to be especially challenging right Mm. now. Um, But do you have ideas for what you're writing next? I have some ideas. Um, 
Most of them still surround Ireland. I do have one story set in Arizona where I was born and raised. Um, and there's another story idea that I had kind of started before this Galway idea kind of took hold mm. um, that follows the story of um, these orphan girls that were sent from the workhouses in Ireland to Australia to work and to be brides and things like that. Um, that really I find fascinating. Um, so lots of ideas, but I'm kind of focusing on finishing up book two and, and launching a dance in Donegal and then, um, hoping to sort of cultivate some ideas to have to, to send to Ravel when things are a little bit more settled down and hopefully, you know, Lord willing, there'll be maybe book three. We'll, we'll see. I hope so. I have lots of ideas. (laughs) Do you, do you think about doing one set in Austria since you lived there as well? Or is that not as close to your heart? I, I have actually, um, I have lots of ideas there as well. There's one, um, rolling around in my head about, um, a girl who, who moves to Vienna to be in the Viennese ballet. Uh, one of our neighbors was actually a professional ballerina for the, mm. the opera there in Vienna. Um, wow. So some ideas there as well, which is very exciting and I think would be an interesting change of pace from rural Ireland, 1921 to maybe Vienna, some other, some other time period. Right. That's cool. Um, so I have a question that I ask every author who comes on my show. I don't know if you've listened at all, but if you have, then you'll recognize it. But um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think so many ways. Um, I tell my students, I remind them, and of course, I can't remember who said it, but you know, those, if you, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. Right. And I think, um, being able to understand how people saw the world back then and experienced the world helps us understand one, how we got to the place we are today, mm-hmm. but also help us think ahead that many years in our future. What kind of story are we setting up for those who come after us? And so I think kind of looking both ways um, behind and ahead can give us a perspective that we wouldn't get if we were just solely focused on the present or the future and um, understanding the sacrifices that our current world is built upon and all the heroes in so many different shapes and forms that paved the way for us to be where we are and maybe how we might want to do things differently or emulate those things that were done well. Right. Right. That's great. Um, so Jennifer, it was great talking with you today. How can listeners purchase A Dance in Donegal? So A Dance in Donegal is available anywhere books are sold. Um, if they go to my website, jenniferdibel.com, um, there's links to all those stores. They can get them at um, Baker Bookhouse, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, um, bookstores are carrying it as well. So pretty much anywhere you can buy a book, you can, you should be able to find it. Awesome. So 
your website is a good place to find you online. Um, what's the best, Mm -hmm. what's the best, um, social media? What do you like? What social media do you like best? I'm most active on Instagram. Okay. Um, and then I do have a readers group on Facebook, which is where I'm kind of most active as an author there. Mm -hmm. Um, those are kind of my two where I hang out the most. Nice. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had fun hearing about your books. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in purchasing A Dance in Donegal or finding out more about Jennifer Dibel, please go to my show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. I have all the show notes to every episode there and and I have links to purchase um, Jennifer's book and links to different things we discussed on the show. So um, you'll always want to check that out. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please subscribe? And also, if you could leave a star rating and review, that would be awesome. It really helps people find the podcast if it has more ratings and reviews um, than people who are looking for something like this can find it more easily. I'm going to leave you today with a quote by an Irish poet and playwright, Oscar Wilde. He said, anybody can make history. Only a great man can write it. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I'll talk to you again next week.